And this morning I will be reading um, the scripture for us. It comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom and she went out to her mother and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths, and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Andrea, and good morning. Welcome again. I'm Travis. Uh, I'm the new senior pastor here. So if it's your first time, it's almost my first time. So you're in pretty good company as well. Um, it's been, without question, another heavy week. Uh, in a string of heavy weeks and what feels like a string of heavy years. Uh, and so this morning, uh, we are going to address some of those things, at least as general topics of suffering and bitterness and pain and what happens when you suffer in life. What does that look like? What does God do with that? We're going to continue in the series that we've been going through uh, when I can be here as much as I can while we are transitioning. Uh, praise God and thank you all for your prayers. We have finally found a house. 
so we are. Uh, yeah. Amen. As any of you all know that have uh, bought or tried to buy something recently, this market is ridiculous. Uh, and so we are thankful to be moving on from that. Uh, but we have been going through, while I'm here, uh, a series in selections from the Gospel of Mark uh, that I've been calling Meeting the Real Jesus. Uh, not the Jesus that maybe I like to think of him this way, or this is how I would picture God, or the Jesus I know would never do that, but the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus on his own terms, revealed in his own way, showing us what he is really like, because it's easy for us, whether we're Christians or not, to end up shrinking Jesus down, to making him into something that is more comfortable for us to work with, maybe something without the miraculous side, or shrinking Jesus down to cut off those rough edges that we don't like, where he says things that we don't want to hear. Maybe we say that wasn't the real Jesus, but we're coming to take Jesus at his own words, at face value, because we are prone to lose the fullness of who he is when we do that. So my hope for us is through this series, through some of the things that we have been addressing and will continue to address, that we will see a fuller picture of who the real Jesus is so that we don't end up rejecting a God who isn't real or putting our hope in a God who is just too small for the world that we encounter, like the world that we have continued to encounter and encountered this week. So today we're going to focus on a Jesus who makes a difference in our suffering, who makes a difference when life is hard, when things go wrong. And we're going to do that indirectly, actually, because Jesus isn't really mentioned in this passage except for the beginning of it. It's as though Herod heard of it, and that's hearing of all the things that Jesus was doing. Uh, we get to know Jesus through what happens to John the Baptist. And this happens in our life a lot, too. When you're getting to know someone, when you have a new friend that you're meeting, you know them a little better through their friends, through what's happened to the people around them and how that impacts them. So we're going to get a, a glimpse of Jesus through someone close to him. And I had planned to address this topic uh, of how Jesus makes a difference in our suffering later on, but in light of the events of the past few weeks of the senseless violence in Buffalo, in Laguna Woods, even this last week in Texas, and as we just passed the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, it seemed important that we address these things now. So I'm hopeful that God will meet us in the midst of these things, that he will meet your hearts. And maybe, as uh, Greg Russell said for us earlier, some of the questions, some of the uncertainty and the conflict and confusion we feel about the events around us, some of the pain we feel in that, my prayer is that God might meet us in these things and that we will see Jesus who makes a difference in suffering by looking at two things. We're just going to look at Herod's sin and John's suffering. So just those two things. That's how we'll approach our text this morning. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's ask God to fill up our time. Father, I do pray that you would meet us this morning, that you would show us who you are in the midst of these things. As we feel maybe numb, maybe angry, maybe bitter, maybe confused, maybe just hurt, maybe feeling hopeless, God. You know where we are this morning and you know what we need. These things are not a surprise to you, though they are painful to you, though we know they weigh on your heart, and if they weigh on our hearts, how much more on yours, who is good, who is loving, who is pure, who is love. 
So God, would you help us to take the broken pieces of our hearts, the broken pieces of our country to you in prayer? Would you fix them? Would you do something with them? Would you do something with our own hearts and the brokenness that we find there this morning? Would you do it all by your grace? Because we know that you've invited us to ask, knowing that you are good and you delight to answer. So it's in your son's holy name and by your powerful Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, feel free to keep them open. We're going to reference different parts of the text this morning as we go through it here, but we're going to start out just with Herod. Uh, Herod is called here a king. I'm going to try to give us a little bit of context about who he is, where he's found. He's not a true proper king. This is the time of the Roman Empire. Rome has conquered pretty much everything that anyone can see in the West, and ancient Israel is no exception to that. So Herod is kind of a puppet king. He reports to the local governors, to Caesar himself even. So this is not someone that has full autonomy. He is more, uh, maybe more like a mayor, right, than a, a president. This is someone that still has authority but not sweeping wide powers. And he was uh, this ruler for the empire uh, over the regions of Galilee and Perea, as our text uh, uh, alludes to here that are parts of present-day Israel and Jordan. So they were sort of uh, different pockets. It wasn't kind of a contiguous area, but a little bit spread out. And so Herod, this sort of provincial ruler, this uh, man that's a puppet for the ultimate government of Rome, is going to be someone that we see at the very outset here who is not a good person. This is not a good and this is not someone that Scripture is holding up to us to emulate, but someone that continually in our passage falls off the rails. And I want to see how God reveals some of what he thinks about us through the way that Herod falls off the rails and what that happens uh, to do for John's suffering. And I also want us to see how, how kind of Herod's falling apart teaches us about how we ought to approach sin, how we ought to think about the things that we do that aren't good. And so we're going to see here Herod slowly unraveling. Even if you don't like the concept of sin, it's not a word that you're comfortable with. When you see this person, you think, yep, yeah. Right? This is not a good person because first he makes the family-crushing choice, as our text is, says here, to marry his brother's wife, Herodias. And he does this while his brother is still alive. This is a kind of marriage in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, that is only allowed when a brother had died. And it was done only so that they might keep alive the family that God had given them, particularly just providing for their practical needs. This was an agrarian society, an ancient society. A woman whose husband had died had very few options. This was meant to be a mercy, not just some kind of indulgence, and particularly only after someone had died. Otherwise, it was expressly called out as a great sin. In Leviticus, Scripture talks about it there as something you ought not to do. And I think any one of us could imagine why this is not good, why this would be extremely hurtful and painful, why this would destroy families and lives. This was not something good, and yet Herod does that while his brother was still alive which is effectively to say to his brother, I don't really care if you live or die. It's to treat him as if he is dead to him. 
Imagine the pain of that if one of your siblings treated you that way. If a friend treated you that way, said, I don't care if you live or die, and did things that said, that's really how they feel. Imagine the pain of that. This is a real bitter moment that someone has created for his own family, for those closest to him, for a brother. Here it is without doubt a sinful man. This is something that is wrong. And scripture is not saying that it is anything else than that. But this is only the beginning of Herod's sin because John the Baptist, who was a prophet at that time, the last prophet before Jesus, the last one to call out to the people of God to come home from all the things they were doing, just like Herod was doing, to walk away from God, to walk away from the things of life toward things that looked like life but actually led towards death. John was that prophet, that, that public figure crying out, for things to be made right, saying these things are not okay, calling for accountability, calling for repentance, calling for goodness, and John can't help but speak to the local ruler, the local person in power, about the ways that that person was doing something that was grievously wrong. And that, as we see in our society, sets up a painful conflict between someone without power who is calling for what's right and someone who is in power who doesn't care about what's right. Because Herod abuses his power to imprison someone that his wife doesn't like. Herod doesn't really seem to be that bothered by John, but it bothers his wife. And so just to appease his wife, he puts someone in prison. And an ancient prison is not a resort. Right? An ancient prison is a terrible place to be and John, without a doubt, would have been having a really hard life at this point. And we see that Herod's sin is getting worse. It's not just that he has a relationship that it's wrong, it's that in the midst of that relationship, he will cause other people to suffer so that he can continue to enjoy that relationship without any kind of bother going on in his life. But his sin is going to get worse from here at his own birthday party. Some of us have probably had birthday parties that are not what you wish they were, right? Anyone had somewhat of a disappointing birthday? I'll just raise my hand for you, right? I'm sure we've all experienced those moments. Uh, This is a moment where Herod sabotages his own birthday. I don't know if you've done that. Maybe you've had a really bad day and you're like, I'm burning this down, right? This is not gonna go well for anybody today. This is going to end poorly. This is, uh, Herod sort of falls backward into destroying his own birthday in a greater depth of his own sin here, which starts actually through his wife Herodias, who, as our text says, has been awaiting her chance to silence John, to kill him, right, for all the ways that he is bothering her own spirit with his continual conviction of saying, this is not right. This is not right. She wants that to stop and she wants to put John away for good. And so what does she do? She manipulates her own child, her daughter, to dance what seems to be, as commentators can best understand the text, to be somewhat of a suggestive, inappropriate dance in front of all these important guests. These would be the local cities, local city officials and power brokers of the area. She is dancing in front of all of them in an inappropriate way, something that would be very strange for a princess to do. Remember, this is the daughter-in-law of the king. This is someone of nobility, of royalty, of standing. This would be very strange for someone to do, let alone something that no married man in this culture would ever 
consider letting his wife do, so that tells us that she must be young. This is a young child being manipulated by her mother. Herodias uses her own likely teenage daughter to coax a response out of her husband. This is wrong. Maybe some of y'all have experienced family dynamics like this, and I am sorry for that. And Scripture is saying that sort of thing is wrong. Manipulation of children by parents is not right. Now, that's not to say, kids, that parents don't get things wrong. We get things wrong, right? We need to apologize. We need to repent. But there is no whiff of repentance in Herodias here. This is all manipulation for her own benefit. This was also wrong. And yet Herod is so thrilled by this dance when he should have been upset. Culturally, at least, he should have been frustrated to say, this is not what a princess does. This is not what a young woman does. This is not happening. Instead, he seems to be very excited by this. And he makes a very generous promise to give the girl, it says, anything that she wants up to half his kingdom, which didn't literally mean you can ask for Perea and take it and I'll just settle with Judea over here. No, th- this is, this is a, um, an ancient kind of colloquial way of saying, I'm going to be very generous to you. It's sort of saying, ask me anything, right? It doesn't mean anything. There will be a stopping point. But it's a way of saying, I'm going to be very generous. This has really meant something to me. So there's, there's a twisted sense of which this shouldn't mean something to him. And yet he's also being outlandishly generous for something that is also wrong. We are again seeing Herod spiral farther and farther down. Herod doesn't want uh, to do anything here except just be excited and offer a generous gift. And Herodias then draws her daughter deeper into her own malice here, into a plan to kill John the Baptist by asking for his head. And it seems that uh, the daughter, unfortunately, in growing up in this house, has had some of those, those wicked things come into her own heart because it doesn't say that the mother asked for the head on a, a platter, which is a very terrible and gruesome thing. But the daughter does this of her own accord. The family is making itself worse and worse. And hearing this, Herod, not wanting to disappoint the girl or somehow embarrass himself in front of his guests as if you could do that by agreeing to something like this, he actually agrees to carry out her wish and has John killed. Now, he's, he's sad about that, the text seems to suggest, but he does it anyway. That doesn't make it better. I'm glad that he is not feeling good about this, and yet he still lets it happen. It's not enough to just have the right feelings. We also need to have the right actions. Herod doesn't have the right actions here. Because what's particularly concerning is that Herod considers this request to kill someone who is innocent to be in line with his generous promise to his uh, to his stepdaughter. Again, he says, up to half my kingdom. That's, again, a generosity formula. That's not saying I will give you all the way to this amount, not a hard limit. It's saying he would be generous, but there would be a stopping point. So if there would be a stopping point, why consider this, just because she asked for it, automatically in line with that? Herod is the ruler of the area. Herod could have said no. No, but he doesn't. 
He could have said, this is beyond half my kingdom. My kingdom can't kill innocent people, will not kill innocent people. His powerful and influential guests would appreciate that because someday they could find themselves in John's position and want to know, Herod's not going to do that. But he doesn't do that. Why not say that? Why not use his power to say no? And this is where I want us to start seeing some of what sin does to us and how we ought to treat sin in our lives and in our world. Herod doesn't say no because his sense of right and wrong, his moral courage, his fortitude had already been broken by marrying his brother's wife. His ability to know what is right and wrong has already been something he has sacrificed a long time ago. He has already started slowly down a path where increasingly bad choices don't seem that bad anymore. He is going off the rails. He's giving in to sin in one area of his life, and that's eroded his ability to say no to sin in other areas of his life. See, the the temptation of marrying Herodias wasn't just about that relationship. That sin wasn't just out to kind of corrupt that small pocket of his life. It was about breaking his soul down more and more and more until he had no defenses so it wouldn't seem that hard to do something like what he did to John. That's what's happening here. That's what kept him from saying no to a great, obvious sin. You didn't even have to know the book of Deuteronomy or the Levitical Code to know that in the Ten Commandments it says, thou shalt not kill, right? Like, Herod didn't need to be a super smart guy to know that. It wasn't that obscure of a thing to know that this is not right. He says yes to an obviously wrong thing. What I want us to see is that this is what sin does, not just to Herod, but to anyone. Sin breaks you down. Small sin does not stay small. It is not after just one corner of your life. It is always trying to be expansive, trying to take more than you asked for, more than you bargained for. When Herod thought about blowing up his family and marrying his brother's wife, he wasn't thinking, one day I'll have such weak kind of moral fortitude that I'll say yes to anything. I'll say yes to killing somebody that's innocent. He didn't think that on that day, but this is where that path leads. Sin is always leading you farther than you want to go. It's always taking more than you plan to give. It's always destroying more than you thought was possible. This is what it does to us. This is the warning of our text. To not think that that the temptation that's in front of me right now to be really, really angry with someone in a way that's unjustified, to be really, really selfish, to be greedy, to whatever it is, to not think that that one individual moment is ever just about that. Because it's not. It's about breaking down the walls of your soul until you blur the lines of right and wrong so much that you no longer know or maybe no longer care what is right or wrong anymore. We like to think that the smaller things in life don't matter. We like to think that the little, the small sins, the little white lies, whatever it may be, that these things don't really matter, that they're not a big deal. We don't want God putting his nose in our personal choices. Let me be. 
Don't ask for too much from me. Don't dig too deeply into what I do with my, with my money, with my words, with my choices. The problem is this text shows us a continuity to who we are. That what happens in one corner of our life doesn't stay in that corner. There is an integral whole nature to who we are. Things are interrelated. What happens in one aspect of us affects the rest of us. Which is why God lays claim to the whole of our lives. All of our lives. Because to say to God, you can speak into these areas of life, but not, not this area of my life. Don't talk about that. Don't tell me what I can do with my money or my time or my words. To say that is to set ourselves up for falling in another area of life that we haven't even been thinking about because we haven't understand the interconnected nature of how God made us to be whole people. Think about this like sin as more of a disease. If you have a compromised immune system, if you have some kind of uh, pain in your body, that affects the rest of your body's ability to function. You have less of an ability to think straight when you have a cold sometimes. Other systems get impacted by something that is hurting your body. The same is true of our souls. Other systems of how we care for each other, how we interact with each other, get impacted by things that we think have no connection with them because we were meant to be this whole. That's what happened to Herod. He ignored God in what were still terrible things, but smaller things farther back down the line from actually taking someone's life, and he lost his ability, little by little, to push back against a greater evil. And so I don't want to unpack these things in front of you to say, be afraid that sin is a runaway train, but to say, don't be fooled. The temptation in front of you today, whatever it is to take you away from God, one little step is not just one little step. That's not what it's about. Have our eyes open to the deception of what sin wants from you, what it wants to do to you. It is never a one step away kind of compromise. It is a one step away with an eye to a mile away. It is only meaning to take us farther and farther away from God. Sin is not our friend. The text wants us to be clear about that. It only works against us. It doesn't stay contained. It grows. So it is something that, as John called out for, we have to be on watch against. It is not just a small personal thing. It is attacking the integrity of who we are. And in that attack, it not only does things to us at times, it does things to other people. Just look at John and his suffering in our second consideration here. I want us to see that, that John suffered here not because of his own sin, but because of someone else's sin. He suffered because of Herod's sin, not his John suffered not for sinful choices that he had made, not for his own walking away from God in small ways, but because someone else did and used their power to sin against him. And what I want to bring out and what I think is important in these moments like we have witnessed in the past few weeks, in the past few years, and even longer in the history of our country and our world is that suffering can come into your life and that may say absolutely nothing about who you are. 
that someone can do something wrong to you and that says absolutely nothing about whether you are good, worthy, or lovable. That was the story of Jesus Christ, 100%. Jesus suffered and went to the cross as someone who was more good, worthy, and lovable than anyone else. That was the story for John. He did nothing wrong, and yet he suffered. And what I want us to understand from that is that suffering is not an automatic sign that there is something wrong with you. Yes, sometimes we make bad choices, and that leads to consequences in our lives. But because life is hard, because something is going wrong, that does not mean that God is trying to send you some secret message about how you are messed up. Suffering says nothing automatic about who you are or what God thinks of you. I just want to be really clear about that. Suffering says nothing automatic about who you are or what God thinks of you. Because if you are a Christian, it's Jesus Christ who defines who you are and what God thinks of you. It's not your sin, it's not your circumstances, it's not how much money you have, it's not how good in school you are. Jesus defines how much you're worth, what your future will be, what your ultimate life will look like, no matter how badly you have blown it this morning, this past week, or your life. He's the one who says how much you are worth and how good you are because his suffering on the cross redefines who we are. It changes who we are down to our core because that's where God shows you exactly what he thinks of you. That's where God shows you exactly what he thinks of sin. He thinks it is terrible, horrible, worthy of the worst kind of punishment. He agrees with a guilty conscience in that way. But he also shows you that he equally thinks that he will not let sin define you. Yes, it must be done away with, but no, that's not the end of your story. Yes, you've blown it. Yes, you've made huge mistakes. Yes, you've walked away with me, but I am not done with you. That's what he thinks of you. The cross says that your actions and your circumstances are not what say who you are. The worst suffering that comes into your life is not what says who you are. The pain, the hurt that you may feel just because of the color of your skin in our society, in our country, is not what defines who you are. Jesus Christ is most fully what defines your worth and your value. It's the cross that says who you are, and in that moment, God says, you are good. You may have once rightly wondered what God thought of you, but if you look at the cross, you now know just how much he loves you.
So if you want to know what God thinks about you in times of suffering, I don't want you to look at your circumstances and try to guess. God is not asking you to look at your circumstances and try to guess. God, when he wants you to know something, speaks very clearly. That's what we believe scripture is. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. There is no sort of weird discerning of is God trying to say something? If he wants you to know something about salvation, about what he thinks about you, about what he holds out to you, he says it clearly. And the cross is God saying with absolute clarity, this is what I think of you. That I'm willing to go to these lengths for you. Not on your worst, I'm sorry, not on your best day, but on your worst day. Not when you were lovable and beautiful, but when you are ugly and broken. John knew that. He pointed to that. His death became an echo of that because like John, Jesus was imprisoned by the local rulers because of a grudge they held over things that he said that they didn't like. Jesus did nothing wrong and yet he was punished anyway. Jesus went to a brutal death and became a spectacle for all to see. And through this echo, it's as if at the cross, Jesus steps into that moment where John's life completely fell apart, his darkest hour, and just sits down with him in that pain in that moment I want us to see God does the same thing with us in our suffering and in our pain he sits down that's what the cross is the depths of our pain whatever great lengths they may be that's Jesus sitting down with you in your pain in your suffering but not just sitting down with you and leaving you there because unlike John who did not get out of the grave, John whose death couldn't redefine the life of the broken people that had hurt him, Jesus did get out of the grave. Through his his death, our sin was redefined. Our suffering is told now through the cross to sit down and be quiet because there is a different authority over your life. Do you have that kind of hope in the face of suffering? That there is someone who sits in it with you? That there is someone who definitively says that no matter what happens to you in your life, not by virtue of how much you can offer me, but just by virtue of the fact that I chose to love you, I say you are lovable, you are worthy, you are worthwhile. Because everything else is going to ask you to give something to get that. Jesus is the only thing, the only one who doesn't ask you to give something to get his love. He moves towards you in your suffering, in your pain. Is that the kind of hope you have or is our hope, even Christians, is your hope more tied to just avoiding pain? Does your God, your picture of God, your picture of Jesus melt away when you start to have pain in your life? Not to shame you, but to say open our our hearts more to see the God who sits down with us in our suffering, to say that his opinion of me does not change when my life circumstances change. Don't you want something more than a life that's always up and down, whether you're a Christian or not? God wants something more for you. I would encourage you not to settle for less than what God would want to give you.
And I want to encourage you to do that today practically too, through, through two things, through staying alert and talking back. I want to encourage you to stay alert to sin. As we saw with Herod, sin doesn't stay neatly contained. It may start over here, but that's not where it ends. That's not what it's after. That's not what it does to us. So when we are tempted to sin in a small way this week, maybe right now after service, whether that's to be selfish with my time, maybe if that's to be angry with someone later, maybe if that's whatever it may be, recognize that in that moment, that temptation is not just about this one moment. Because sometimes when the blinders come off, we get a greater ability to fight. We get a greater ability to stand up to sin in our own lives if we see, I know where this is going. This is not about this moment. I have more strength, more ability. I can rely on the Holy Spirit who is opening my eyes to see in that moment to say this is not for my good or for the good of others and I'm not going to go down that road. I would encourage you also to stay alert through community. We can't do this by ourselves. People should have in that room stood up and told Herod, no, this is not what our community is going to be about. We don't do this. So we also need to be that for each other, for our society, to be the people that say, we don't do this. Because there are always going to be moments where each of us are prone to think what I'm doing is not a big deal and it's okay for me to do it. And God says, you don't see where this is taking you. Leave ourselves open to having the community speak into your life to see what you can't see, to see where sin is trying to take you. And secondly and finally, talk back. Talk back to your suffering. We're pretty good, if you're like me, at telling ourselves how much we mess up and how bad you are at getting things right. I, don't, I would say that probably no one talks as poorly to you as you talk to yourself. But sin, our mistakes, these things are not what define us now if we believe in Jesus. Jesus is what defines you. Jesus, it says, how much you're worth how good you are, what your ultimate future will be. Whether he will bring you home or not is not dependent on you, but dependent on him. If it was dependent on you, he wouldn't have needed to come. But he did come. So let the cross talk back to your suffering. Let it define what God thinks of you, how committed he is to saving you and loving you. Let the cross be the suffering that tells your suffering, sit down and be quiet because you don't get to say who I am. Jesus says who I am. Because our belief as Christians is that suffering can do its worst, but in the end our confidence is that Jesus Christ will do his best and let's see what happens when these two meet. The world's worst and Christ's best. We don't have to guess about that either because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that when Jesus does his best, when he comes back for us, the sufferings of this present time will not be worth comparing, will not be worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Jesus has talked back for you at the cross. Let him talk back for you now in your world, in your circumstances as we await that day when he makes all things new. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us a value that suffering can't touch, for talking back to the suffering in our lives for us when we are really prone to think that this just means I'm not good, I'm not lovable, I'm not worth it, you don't care about me anymore. God, we ask that you would speak back to the many ways that we talk ourselves down when you only talk us up. Help us to see just how good and beautiful you are. We confess the many ways that we just want to do our own thing, that we, that we don't even think about where this is taking us. Would you open our eyes to see something new, that we might walk in a freer, fuller way, that we would be whole people as you meant for us to be. Thank you that you give us the power to do that in your Holy Spirit, that it doesn't rely on us, not at the beginning, not at the end. Thank you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen.